Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. How are y'all today? It's nice to see some first-timers back uh, here with us this morning. Uh, I just want to talk briefly to the live stream audience. Um, just to let you know, uh, over the next few weeks, if you haven't figured it out, we're just trying to tweak and get better. So uh, every once in a while, you're going to hear some noises or hisses or whatever, and uh, just bear with us uh, because we want to make the experience uh, just as good for you at home as it is for everybody else here. So thank you, and thank you for all who do all the work behind the scenes that you never see, and it's a ton of work and a ton of people. So thank you to all of them. Here we are. Uh, just uh, parents, just so you're aware, um, we'll be closing with a song that is usually the cue for the soul kids to come down so that you don't have to go and pick up your children. So we have it all worked out and uh, it's very comfortable. Now, we're continuing with our study in the Minor Prophets. And today you can turn to the book of Micah and I have to admit that this was a difficult week in preparation for myself. You know, as I poured over the book, I have to be honest, um, I wanted to focus on one particular part of this book, but there was always something else that was getting in my way because it sort of almost hit close to home, if I could put it that way. When you think of a prophet in the Old Testament, we often think of men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these men who were given these uh, unenviable tasks of having to go and proclaim the message of God uh, to a people that had long since stopped listening and obeying the commands of God. Now, as you look in the Old Testament, there are actually three types of prophets. Um, there are the oral prophets. These are guys like Samuel, Nathan, Ahijah, Elijah, Elisha, and all their words are recorded in other books like Samuel and Kings. Other prophets, um, uh, their words are recorded by themselves, written by themselves, or maybe they had a secretary or a scribe uh, as proof of their uh, validity as prophets. And so they, they would write all these down and it becomes a testament for future generations of the faithfulness of God, people like Isaiah, um, Micah, things like that. Beyond the written and the oral prophets, however, it's interesting because we also have a third group of prophets who appear in the Old Testament. Now, these are prophets that have often served the kings of Israel and Judah, and uh, they were called the court prophets. Um, they either had the gift of prophecy and, and they used it for their own ends, or they simply lied about their prophetic gifts. As a matter of fact, when you look in the Old Testament, we see that even Moses gives them a warning. And he warned about the existence of these charlatans in his final address to Israel. And you pick it up in Deuteronomy 18.20. The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. I kind of like that. You know, Moses is, there's no black and white. He's very clear about these guys. And so the ultimate sign that these prophets were false, Moses said, would be that their words failed to pass. Interesting, and unfortunately, Israel often failed to make the effort to distinguish between, you know, who was truly God's prophet and, and God's word and not. And so these false prophets frequently show up as opponents uh, to the true prophets of God, and their conflicting messages force the kings, force the rulers, and ordinary people to choose which message they were going to listen. In almost every case... Israel did not choose to listen to the warnings of the true prophets, but instead accepted the words of these false prophets because that message was pleasing to their ears. 
And this is where Micah comes in, you know. So open your iPhones, your iPads, especially your eyelids, please, and let's get started. And if you're tuning in for the first time, um, again, we're continuing in our series of Minor Prophets, and what we do with it is that we ask five simple questions. The first one is, who wrote the book? Then where are we in history? Why is this book so important? What is the main message? And then, how do I apply it to my lives? So Micah uh, is the author. Now, he's the last of the great prophets here in the 8th century B.C., which gave us Moses, Hosea, um, Isaiah. Uh, His father's name is not recorded, leaving some scholars to think that Micah was probably from a peasant family. He actually identifies himself from a small village 40 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem called Morsheth. Um, He identifies himself with his hometown. So in other words, what we have here is a good old farm boy, right? And this leads to his strong concern for the less fortunate of society, the lame, the outcast, the afflicted. He's, he's able to see maybe a little bit more than people who are blinded by living in the city center. And uh, in, the, in the Bible, the, the meaning of, of Hebrew names are often very significant. And so Micah's name is very significant. It comes across like a question. His name means who is like God or who is like Jehovah. And therefore, this question is constantly repeated in this book. Uh, everywhere he goes, you know, apparently what he's saying is, who is like God? And the subsequent answer to this is no one. And uh, it, it reminded people that God stood alone. Micah's presence, because of his name, is a reminder of Psalm 113. The Lord is high above all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? So nobody is like God, and that's, that's Micah. But then scholars begin to wonder whether or not people began to actually call Micah, you know, this who is like God. In other words, there's a suggestion that this might be a nickname that was given to this guy. So you can imagine, you know, walking down the street one day, and you look around, and there's Micah, and he's coming up the street, and other people are saying to themselves, well, here comes old who is like God. So it's an interesting play on words that's going on here. So where are we in history? Well, one contemporary Micah was the prophet Isaiah. And when you take a look at these two books, it's, it, they're very similar. And some, sometimes, in fact, Micah is called Isaiah in miniature, all right? Much of it is uh, just a briefer presentation of essentially the same message and the prophecy of Isaiah. So I, I, I find that very interesting. Now, Micah, what he has done is he has prophesied both to the southern and the northern kingdoms, to Judah and Israel. And... Uh, He prophesied during the momentous years surrounding the tragic fall of Israel to the Assyrian Empire. And uh, this happens around 722 BC. Again, an event that he predicted right in the first chapter as we open the book. And during this period, while Israel was imploding from the effects of evil and the unlawful, uh, unfaithful leadership, Micah directed much of his prophecy towards these powerful leaders of Samaria. Now, Samaria was the capital of Israel, and Jerusalem was the capital of Judea. So you need to keep those in your, mi- in your, in your mind when you're looking at and reading this book. And so why is this book so important? Other than the obvious warning to both Israel and Judah of the coming destruction, it provides one of the most significant prophecies of Jesus' birth in all the Old Testament. 
It's pointing to some 700 years before Christ's birth in his birthplace of Bethlehem. And it's pointing to his eternal nature. And we read that in, in Micah 5 too. And also surrounding Micah's prophecy <clears throat> of Jesus' birth as one of the most articulate pictures of world, the world's future under his reign, the reign as the Prince of Peace in chapter 5. And this future kingdom, which scholars call the Millennial Kingdom, will be characterized by the presence of many nations living with one another in peace and security. And because these events have not yet occurred, we look forward to this Millennial Kingdom at some undetermined time in the future. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. So what's the main message? This is a crazy little book. Like, it's interesting, all these little minor props, they're crazy how they're all put together and what they have to say. Because there are seven chapters in this little book, and they can be divided into three parts. One third of it targets the sins of the people. Another third looks at the punishment of God to come. Another third looks at the promises of hope for the, the faithful after judgment. And uh, the first three chapters actually begin to describe the failure of the nation. There we, we get this theme in, in many of the prophets. But here in this book, we, we have the picture of the lack of godliness. Chapter 1, verse 2 begins with, hear you peoples, right? And, and then he tells us the judgment for idolatry and then the judgment for injustice. And then in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3, he unmasks corruption and, and arrogance and complacency of, of their secular and religious leaders. In chapter 3, it actually is, describes a courtroom scene, and you can actually break it down in which we have the charges laid out before them. We have the witnesses and then the sentence. So it's very creative in the way that Micah is presenting this. He's taken them to court. And then comes the wonderful sections of chapter 4 and 5 that is a vision of the future. And this predictive section that gives us, uh, helps us look forward to the coming of Christ, the Messiah. And then in the last two chapters, we, it gives us the pleading of God to the nation, which is so interesting. Again, chapter two opens up with, here are you mountains. And, and, and the court case actually continues here, and it continues in which God's people stand trial before their creator for turning away from him. And so here Micah addresses acceptable worship, and then finally in chapter seven, he deals with Israel's sin and God's salvation, and God reminds the people uh, of his good works uh, on their behalf and how he cared for them while they really only cared for themselves. But rather than leave God's people with fear and the sting of judgment, the, the book of Micah, it concludes again with the prophets calling the Lord as his only source of salvation and mercy, pointing to people towards an everlasting hope in their everlasting God. So there's always this little picture of hope, even though there's some serious judgment to come. So, how do I apply it to my life? That's why we're here. And if you remember from day one, we said when we look at the books of the Minor Prophets, we always have to treat it like a mirror. So when you begin to read it, what do you see? What's being exposed in our own lives as we begin to read this? I, I want to just share some of my personal findings, but much of Micah's indictment against Israel and Judah involves these nations' injustice towards the deprived. There's unjust business dealings, there's a robbery, there's injustice um, towards a people, there's a mistreatment of women and children and a government and a religious system that lived in luxury off the hard work of its nation's people. Basically, we're looking at corruption. Micah had to face enemies. He had enemies who criticized him for his preaching. 
And he's speaking the truth. He's speaking God's word. He's mandated to say this. And the people didn't want to hear him. In Micah 2.6, we see a direct confrontation where it says, do not prophesy, the prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And I was, don't, don't, what are you doing? His message goes against the grain. Micah's message was one that was just too difficult to hear. The average person didn't want to hear it. Which leads me to my rant this morning. I know I'm supposed to preach and not rant, but I'm going to rant. Is that okay? In my world, and yours, but in my world and in our day, there continues to be a call by some people that, you know what, Jerry, some things are just, don't preach about them. And trust me, I hear it. There are maybe those who say, you know, don't, don't preach about this or don't preach about, you know, don't preach about money because God's, you know, the word of God really has nothing to say with what I do with my wallet. Oh, okay. Don't, don't preach about sexual immorality, which is all sex outside of marriage, right? Right? Because nobody listens to, any, to that anymore because it's such outdated themes. Don't preach about the sanctity of marriage. Don't preach about the power of evil or the devil or sin or hell because nobody wants a scary God. Jerry, just tell us a cute 20-minute little story, then we can go home saying, that was a nice sermon at the door on the way out. See, today our culture wants words that will soothe our pain, but without the hardships, like the need to change or commitment. We want the words of someone not to cause us to be offended. We want somebody who will tell us that, you know, everything is all right and, and nothing will go wrong as long as you just keep living the life that you choose to live. People want to hear that Jesus came, that we might have guilt-free immorality. Or that we should go into all the world and preach the gospel but never make anybody feel uncomfortable. And so what's a preacher left with? Think about it. You know, is it a safe God to talk about? Is it a God that won't offend anybody? A God who will save his people without any judgment, conversion, or repentance? You know, and then as a preacher, if I have to live like that in our culture, then we're left with a watered-down semi-Christian message about a sentimental God of love and fuzzy feelings. But there's a problem with that. It's how we look at the Bible. And if we look at the Bible as God's word being spoken to us, then the God of the Bible is so much more than that. He is such more, more than just a good moral teacher. And if we're not careful, we'll also fall into the same trap the Israelites did here in Micah. Because you see, there's another major problem with Judah that, um, that was going on. And they're committing these major injustices against the poor and the oppressed. And they refused to listen to anybody who cried out against these crimes. And instead, they only wish to hear the good things from their prophets. That's where the false prophets come in. Even if it was clear to them, think about it, they knew that the prophet was a liar. And Micah said, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy you for plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. You know, that's the kind of preaching that people wanted to flock to. Oh, don't worry about the future. Let's just party on. Drink up. That's what they're saying. And it's very clear that the people had rejected the truth in favor of lies that made them feel good. Woke Jesus said, your truth will set you free. So 
The contrast between Micah and the false prophet should be one that we need to take to heart. And oftentimes we listen to the words that we want to hear rather than the truth. Truth is hard to hear. We want to have our words, our, we want to have our ears tickled and, and accumulate for ourselves teachers in accordance to our own desires. Just tell me what I want to hear. Don't tell me what is real. Let's let our feelings determine our theology. And this is exactly what Paul warned Timothy about that would happen in 2 Timothy. For the time will come when people will not put up sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now what struck out to me personally is found in, in verse 311. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. No disaster will come upon us. What we see is that there are all three classes of rulers in the nation. We have the civil, the, 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 the civic or the political rulers. We have the moral rulers, which would be considered like judges, right? We also have the spiritual rulers of the day. Now, in Micah's day, all these should have been godly Jewish people. And unfortunately, they are the most ungodly because they fail to recognize that whenever a person is in any kind of office, any office of any kind, that they are there to actually represent God. Paul goes on and says this in Romans 13.1, that those powers exist, that, that exist, actually have been instituted by God. And that doesn't just stop with the civil government, but it also applies on any level when you think about it. And Paul calls them ministers of God for a reason in the New Testament. Because, you know, when you know, rulers, whether you're civil, spiritual, or moral, when you recognize that you are representatives of God, there's always good government. But when they forget, then there is corruption, then there is oppression, there is bribery, there is agony, there is tears. And anybody within an earshot of Micah's voice knew their leaders were lying. Isn't that crazy? And if there is no longer any respect for earthly authority, then how can there be respect for divine authority? And as followers of Jesus, I think we need to be extremely cautious about trusting, and I say this about myself, the words of teachers and preachers and political leaders or anybody else just because we like what they're saying. And if we cannot be trusted to be discerning in the little matters of truth, why would the world trust us to be discerning in the most important truth, the truth of Jesus according to the scriptures? The jobs of our leaders in society back then was and is to provide justice for all, even today. But that's not what was taking place back then. In, in chapter 3, 1 to 3, these leaders were, were saying to the people, if you want ju justice, it's going to cost, cost you. You know, when it says there that they were tearing off the skin of the people, he's actually just picturing it metaphorically and it's the same way as, you know, we would say that, you know, you're skinning ass alive. It was just an expression. Leaders are ripping people off. The people cried out for justice and the leaders ignored them and all they were concerned about was the money and the power that it brought them. The religious leaders, and this is where it hits personally at home, they would prophesy peace if, if they were paid well. And if they weren't paid well, well, then they would prophesy doom. 
right? They acted like they could control and manipulate God. Like, if you don't pay me well, I'm going to sick God on you. And there was this aspect of fear. So, you know, what was their role supposed to be? They were, they, they were to be God's link to men in, in, in that time. They were supposed to be serving God and then giving God's message to the people. But they perverted the will of God and still expected him to provide them with protection and prosperity regardless of what the prophets were preaching. And it's just like some preachers today. If you don't give money to them, they're going to tell you that you don't prosper. If you give lots of money, then they're going to tell you that you will prosper. And in essence, they're teaching that you can manipulate God. In our text, the people would go to the priest and they say, well, is, this, is this kosher? Is this acceptable to God? And the priest would look at them and say, well, what's it to you? How much is it worth for you? And his, his answer depends on how much they're about to pay him. And the priests only cared about themselves. They only cared about lining their pockets. And the priest taught God's principles for a price. And if people paid them, they would preach. If they wouldn't pay them, they wouldn't tell them a word of what God is saying. And they were in it for the money. And the preacher said, you know, really what the people wanted to hear instead of what God wanted said. And Michael proclaimed a message of judgment to a people who were persistently pursuing evil. And I love the fact that Micah gets tired of it. And he says this in, in chapter 3, as, as for me, I'm going to stand up and, and do what is right and proclaim the truth. He's tired. And he stands up. He makes a change. And actually, this should be a model for all of us to follow. That Micah's impassioned plea for God's chosen people. Right? To repent. It actually, when we look at it as a mirror, it should cut us to the heart. Most of us don't decide daily to cut people down or find ways to carry out injustice. Instead, we're just oblivious to it. We do it by habit. And again, if we treat this book as a mirror and we allow the words of Micah to break us out of our apathy of, about extending justice and kindness to others and press on towards a world that better resembles a harmonious millennial kingdom to come, that's what we should be doing. We should be waking up to what's going on. Not just in government but in our religious system and in our life. And this brings where I want to finish today. I'd like to share a dad joke with you if that's all possible. Story of an old painter, launched his, loved his job painting, took on a contract at a local church, underestimated the amount of paint he needed to finish the job and instead of going to the store to purchase more paint because he was in it for a buck, he figured he'd decide to water down the paint. I think you know the story. As the job is nearly finished, the sky darkens, the rain comes, and soon enough, it wasn't long before a raging thunderstorm washed the fresh paint completely off the church. Of course, he looked at himself and he said, this must be an act of God, he thought. So he gets down on his knees and looking up to heaven, he prays, oh God, I am so sorry, how can I make this right? And of course, in a big, deep voice from heaven, he heard, my son, repaint and thin no more. Dad joke, right? But this is actually, as stupid as it sounds, it's the same question the Israelites are asking God here in Micah. How can we make this right? In chapter 6, God has this conversation with the people and he asks them, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. This is God talking. 
And God has set the stage and he now says, why do you reject me? Why are you turning away from me? Tell me. Then he goes on and he begins to remind them that he brought them up from Egypt, that he freed them from slavery and he gave them Moses, he gave them other great leaders and how he saved them generally. And still Israel doesn't seem to get it and they are ungrateful. And this is how they respond. They say, well, what shall I come before the Lord? Bow down before the exalted God. How shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased? So like they're throwing their hands up in the air. Shall I offer my firstborn? Like, you know, like, oh, man. Shall I offer my firstborn from my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That's going pretty far. In other words, they're asking you, what do you want from me, God? You know, what, what can I bring to you, God, to make it all better? What kind, of, what kind of barbecue meat do you want, you know? Is that what you want? What do you expect from me? How can we make this right? Now, isn't that what we say so many times? God, what are you asking me to do? Seriously? Deny myself? Deny my feelings? To such disrespect, God's response is restrained, but it's also very simple and very clear. And with infinite patience, God's message is just really three things that are required to reestablish the covenant relationship between the people of Israel and their God. Just three things. Now listen to God's gracious answer. Probably in one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, to be really honest. He has shown you, O mortal, or O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Response to the question, what do you want from him? Well, what does the Lord require of you? Really simple. To act justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly with your and that's the answer, isn't it? That's the way to godliness. That's the way to godliness, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. After all, he is the only one who can really make us more like him. And compare that with what we read in Micah, with Deuteronomy 10, 12, earlier. And now Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commandments and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. See, in the Hebrew, there are two different words that are both translated require in English. Here in Deuteronomy, it, it, it's more like inquire, it's more like ask of you. But in Micah, it's actually more of a demand. And again, context determines everything. So what does the Lord demand of you? This passage of scripture historically has been called the Micah Challenge. And at one time in history, the Micah Challenge was a global campaign bringing together many organizations, such as World Vision and others, to actually try to deepen the people's engagement with the impoverished and marginalized communities of our world and to challenge international leaders and leaders of rich and poor countries to achieve absolution of global poverty. 
We still see it today. I still see it in my feed on my social media that we can, we can fix the world that we're in. So what is one to do? And I think that as we look at this mirror, that God is very simplistic in his message to Israel and to us, and it's summed up in these simple three Hebrew words. God's saying do three things. Mishpat, Hased, and Hazna. You like my Hebrew? We were actually talking not too long ago that I did better in my Hebrew class in seminary than I did in my Greek. Go figure that. I can't get my head around that. But if we translate those three words, it's do justice, love kindness or mercy, depending on the translation of Hesed, and walk humbly with God. Walk. So Micah's words are, are simple. Micah's words are actually eternal. It's not just for a period of people at a specific time. It's a mirror. It's talking to us. What God required of the people in those days of Micah is the same thing that God requires of you and me today. So what does it mean to act justly? That word, mispat, is used 450 times in the, Old Test, or in the Bible. It means that following God's law means that we treat other people with fairness, justly. Treat people with fairness. Now, there are nine words that are associated with the word justice in the Bible. They are widow, fatherless, orphans, poor, hungry, stranger, needy, weak, and oppressed. And basically chops up our society right there. These are the people that we are being asked to be concerned for. We are to work for fairness for those who lack justice. And so justice is helping the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the poor, the hungry, the needy, the weak, the oppressed, so that they are treated with fairness. Now Micah and his partners in the Old Testament are very clear that a follower of God does justice. Moses says this, follow justice and justice alone in Deuteronomy 16. Psalms 33.5 says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Remember Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's not some new deal. This is a character of who God is. And as we read the scriptures, we see that justice in the Bible is preeminently, it's a relational bond between a holy God and his people. Right? It's also a bond between one another in a community, especially a community of faith. And Christians believe that divine justice was fully personified when it comes to the person of Jesus. We have this whole theology. The Bible explains that Jesus died to take our place, to take upon himself the judgment that we deserve so that we can be justified, so that we can be made right before God. This is the basis of our relationship with God, but also our relationship with one another when you read Romans chapter 3. So it's relational. Biblical justice is also liberating. The scriptures trace the liberation of God's people from slavery. In Exodus, we see the people of God emerge from bondage. Their liberty is assured only as they obey God's leading and uh, relate to him and one another in the way that he prescribes. There's an, the, the, the law is given at Sinai. That, that, those, that testament, that commandment was intended to liberate God's people, to protect them, to provide for them, to give them a future. Notice the way in which their liberation is intended to shape the way that they treated others. 
We read in Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourself are aliens in Egypt. So in other words, don't forget where you came from and make sure you're paying it forward. Fear the Lord your God, serve him. This is how we do it. This is how we do it. Everybody was thinking that, right? So God warns in Leviticus 25, he says, don't take advantage of each other, but fear your God. Later, Isaiah predicted that God would send the Messiah to inaugurate the spiritual year of the Jubilee in Isaiah chapter 6, 61, sorry. It's with those very words, uh, verses 1 to 3, that Jesus begins his first recorded message delivered in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. So what is Jesus doing? He comes to proclaim the good news of liberation, freedom, recovery, release, the season of God's favor to whom? Well, when you read it, it's to the poor, it's to the prisoners, it's to the blind, to those who are oppressed. So biblical justice is relational. Biblical justice is liberating, but it's also restorative. And God's intention is that people be reconciled to himself and to one another in community. And as we've seen, it's, it's specifically those who are vulnerable, right? The poor, the weak, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, who are the focus of God's compassion and protection so that they can survive and so that they can remain in community. In Luke 7, Jesus is having a, a meal at a home of a Pharisee when a prostitute enters, anoints his feet with perfume, wets them with her tears, dries his feet with her hair, the Pharisees appalled. Appalled that Jesus is allowing her to touch him. And then what does he do? He responds with the story about two men who each owed money. One owed a little, the other owed a, a great deal. And the money lender canceled the debt of both. Jesus asks which one will love the money lender most. Well, the Pharisee replies, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt canceled. And then Jesus takes that very same principle and applies it. He rebukes the Pharisee, and he forgives the woman. And what he says to the woman is, is your faith has saved you, go in peace. So what we have is a God who is just. We deserve condemnation, but because Jesus died in our place, God can justly forgive and restore us. And we live by that same principle, and that's why we as believers have to seek justice and restoration for other people. One sociologist wrote, our relation to God's justice is unavoidable. It delineates our lives, it shapes our history. Moreover, both in the scriptures and in 2,000 years of Christian history, we have the greatest formative tradition of justice in world history. When we walk out of the ghetto, we already know in the city, we have a good map, we have access to its ruler. Surely, it is time so to do. Time to do it. Do justice. What's next? Love, kindness, or mercy. That word has said appears over 250 times in the scriptures. We know it as kindness or mercy. It's really compassion, sympathy, if you want to break it down, gentleness, sharing, helpfulness. There's a lot of words that we can pile up around it. It means unconditional love. Even for people that you don't like. Everybody can say amen here, right? To love mercy means that even if the person is guilty, that you're going to be kind and forgiving. It means never writing somebody off as worthless. 
Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving with one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Sounds familiar. It means going out of your way to help someone, even if there's nothing in it for you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Kindness, mercy, gentleness. No matter what word you use, this is the trait required by God's disciples for family, for friends, for work, for school associates, and even for our enemies. Right? Forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. And it's not that we are just merciful. But God's very clear when we look into the mirror. He tells us that we need to love mercy. And the third thing is we've got to walk humbly with your God. You focus on the word walk first. That's usually the first thing to do, which means what? It means it's slow. It's measured. It's, it's deliberate. It's opposite of running. We're walking with God. It's a deliberate, slow pace. We do it how? Humbly. In other words, it's not full of ourselves. We're not preoccupied with what we need or what we want. It's humbly we're putting others first. The person who is proud does not know God, basically according to Scripture. Putting others first. When Isaiah saw the vision of God, what did Isaiah say? He said, woe is me. When Daniel saw a vision of God, he said, my beauty was turned into corruption. Nobody has an encounter with God and comes from that encounter with God feeling pride full, feeling great. We're to walk humbly with our God and remember that we belong to God. We have to remember that this walk, it's personal. Your God has made you who you are, as you are, and, and set you in this life. In other words, he's got a plan for us. Your God is with you in every valley, in every questioning moment, in every dark time, but also in every mountaintop life experience. Your God is there whether you're paying attention or not. He is walking with us beside us. And Jesus said that the greatest person in the kingdom of God was a person who was humble like a child. Follower of Christ were called servants. Humble servants are the opposite of kings and queens, the powerful and the domineering. And humility is sacrificing ourselves and our concerns and our feelings to listen and responding to the needs of others and to the desire of God. Humility is a part of the art of listening. When you forget yourself for a moment, do you actually listen to what God wants you to know or do? See, the key to worshiping God is to sacrifice our own desires. That's not what our culture tells us. Culture says, hey, whatever you feel, it's your truth, do it. But the key to worshiping God is to sacrifice our own desires, our own busyness of mind, in order, why? To give our attention to God and to our fellow human beings. And to walk humbly with God is to sacrifice the ego-centered self, our comfort, our pleasure, in order, what? To focus on the greater good. And so corruption and exploitation and complacency and apostasy inevitably will lead to divine judgment. Then, and I also believe now, 
theologian Dave Gibson wrote to warn the church that we can easily become preoccupied with responding to social issues such as justice or poverty without rooting them in Jesus Christ. And I would trust that my entire message series on the Minor Prophets would be just that. It's not just about justice. Justice is there, but it has to be rooted in Christ. And he writes this. He says, the theme of justice reaches a decisive climax in the cross of Christ. What is being obscured is the fact that God's justice would consume the oppressed refugee in a shantytown as much as it would consume the privileged Westerner with immediate enjoyment of all their human rights or the corrupt dictator who creates refugee crisis. The storyline of the whole Bible presents us with the cross as the place where God uniquely demonstrates his justice with the result that, as one writer has put it, what Golgotha secured for us was not sympathy but immunity. In his first sermon, Jesus quotes Isaiah, contemporary of Micah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it's here that we move beyond the message of Micah to see the broader picture of divine justice in the scriptures. And our view of justice has to be Christocentric, has to always have Jesus in the center. Our justice must be shaped by Jesus. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that anybody should perish, but wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. And again, the backdrop of ungodly rulers and unlike the false shepherds, God promises in Micah 5.2 a divine ruler. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small amongst the clan of Judah, out of you will come for me, the one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. A ruler will be born in Bethlehem and will shepherd God's people, and we know his name. The hope of Israel and indeed the whole world would rest upon the shoulders of the Prince of Peace who will execute perfect justice. And so what we see is that Micah has introduced us to God's justice. He goes on to answer his critics in chapter 7. He says, but as for me, I watch in the hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. And even as he watched his world disintegrate all around him, he looked in hope for the coming of God. We now have that hope in the person of Jesus Christ. So one last time, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? May I suggest that we determine to live as God desires? May I suggest that we do justice, that we love kindness or mercy, and that we walk humbly with our God? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this look into your heart of love. Even though in faithfulness you must judge your people to make them aware of their foolish ways, yet your heart is ever pleading and beneath all the thunders of judgment, the darkness of destruction, really there's a heartbeat of love and concern. 
a concern of readiness to forgive and restore and to bring us back into the fellowship with you. That's what you're doing. So help us then to remember this question, who is like God when we pray? Help us to remember, Lord, to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, walk humbly with you, I pray. Amen. So sanctuary, why don't you stand with me? So how shall we worship our God? Well, you've heard how the Lord requires and what he requires of us. So in ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So sanctuary, leave empty talk and pride behind. Walk the walk and prepare to step out in faith, even if it is troubled waters. And don't be afraid because Jesus will guide your steps along the way. He'll be teaching us to walk humbly, to love boldly, and to serve God with body, soul, mind, and strength. Now, soul, follow where the Spirit leads and go and live the church. Be blessed, and we'll see you next week.